0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust but verify. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny.
1: On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by guest host Rachel Hoff, director of the Center for Freedom and Democracy, and Audrey Tang, the digital minister of Taiwan since 2016. Rachel and Audrey discussed how civically-minded computer programmers in Taiwan, in partnership with the Taiwanese government, are working to strengthen their democracy and improve their governance using the internet and digital tools. They also discussed how Taiwanese social media fosters consensus rather than polarization and how Taiwan is fighting misinformation and election interference. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Minister Audrey Tang, welcome to Reaganism. I'm so excited to speak with you about uh, your role as Taiwan's digital minister um, which you've served in that role since 2016. Um, but first, I would love to uh, hear from you about kind of your, your background. You are a former child prodigy. Um, you worked at companies here in the United States, in Silicon Valley, before returning to Taiwan to um, be involved in Taiwan's civic tech community, which we'll talk a little bit about as we go on, um, but just to start, how did you get interested in computers and technology and in particular, come to believe in the power of technology to solve problems?
0: Certainly, uh, I'm a middle school dropout. When I was 14 years old, I told my principal head of my school that during uh, my work in a science fair, uh, I learned that there's this new thing called the wide web and people were publishing knowledge for free uh, and our textbooks were at least 10 years out of date. So uh, I told the head of school that I want to do research uh, 16 hours a day, not just eight hours a day after school. And after uh, reading over my emails with some researchers, Principal Du Hui Ping said, OK, from tomorrow on, you don't have to go to school anymore and I'll cover for you. And so uh, that's how I learned about uh, where I Web the Internet community and this open knowledge tradition that everyone shares their uh, cutting edge research, which is why this particular podcast we're also publishing into the commons as kind of a token to uh, repay the um, learnings that I did uh, from the Internet community when I was 14 years old.
1: That's wonderful. I will then welcome as well our our new listeners who maybe have not listened to this podcast before through um, through that portal as well. So you you serve, of course, as Taiwan's digital minister. It's a position, a cabinet level position uh, that we don't have here in the United States. So um, for our audience, give us a little bit of context. How many countries in the world have digital ministers?
0: Um, about a dozen or so, but uh, a few more have this idea of digital ambassador. That is to say, like a um, representative, but not to another sovereign country, but rather with multinational semi-sovereign entities, well, such as Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. And and what, kind of as well, yeah.
1: That makes sense. Um, well, more to the point, what exactly is a digital minister?
0: hmm Yeah, um, people ask me that a lot when I first became Taiwan's first digital minister in 2016. Um, and I usually explain at the time in sustainable development goal terms, meaning that uh, I want to build effective partnership w- with reliable data, open innovation. And uh, they said, no, it, this is too abstract. Uh, our citizens do not memorize the global goals. So I have to speak in plain language, which is why I compose a poem, really a prayer uh, as my job description. And it goes like this It's really short. When we see the Internet of Things, let's make it an Internet of Beings. When we see virtual reality, let's make it a shared reality. When we see machine learning, let's make it collaborative learning. When we see user experience, let's make it about human experience. And whenever we hear that a singularity is near, let's always remember the plurality is here. So Digital Minister's job is to ensure that technology work in the service of the society, not the other way around.
1: That's powerful stuff. And it, it I think, describes in a very um, intellectual on the one hand, but also kind of from the heart about about connecting people, the, the foundational aspects of your job. Um, tell us what your role looks like day-to-day. I'm sure there's no typical day or week in the life of Taiwan's digital minister, um, but what are some examples of of the things that you engage on on a daily and weekly basis?
0: Certainly. So, um, At the moment, my focus is on helping the central epidemic Monsanto to ensure that we continue to win against the pandemic with no lockdowns in the past almost two years now. And also the uh, associated infodemic, that's the disinformation crisis like uh, spam spreading at a virus um speed of scam right so scamming spam and so that's another thing that goes with the pandemic is the infodemic so we counter that again with no takedown because we strongly believe in the freedom of speech of the press and so on so day to day i work with uh civic technologists people who do not belong in the government but rather uh in their spare time to contribute new ways to do contact tracing to do vaccine reservation uh to To ration out the mask more effectively, and so on, and uh, they call themselves G0V or Gov0. Uh, You see, all the digital services in Taiwan are in websites that ends in gov, just like your country, right? .gov.tw. But this bunch of people changed the O to a zero. So for each digital service you don't like, instead of protesting about it, you can fork it, meaning take a uh, alternative vision to it and build something that g0v.tw that people can discover and reimagine how to do such public service more effectively. So I work with that community and we make sure that their newest innovations, for example, checking in at venues without downloading any apps, are incorporated into our policy making in just like 24 hours.
1: It's a great example of how to how to leverage those tools for for as you say not just the the COVID pandemic but the pandemic of disinformation and misinformation which which I want to get to a little bit later in our conversation. Um, but before that, you 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 know when you talk about the GovZero community and and obviously a very central part of your job is working with what what. Uh, many call the civic tech community. It's a, it's a community, a concept that's definitely not unique to Taiwan, but I think many would say that you all have the best or one of the best examples of, of that civic tech community. Um, basically a group of technologists or computer programmers who use their, maybe use their hacking skills for the, the forces of good um, to develop software that, that helps people for, for the cause of mm-hmm. public service. Tell us a little bit more. Unpack kind of that concept of the civic tech community in general, and then in particular, what that looks like in Taiwan. You gave us a great kind of practical example on the um, for the pandemic, but what is that community more broadly?
0: Sure. So GovZero, around 10,000 people uh, on online chat channels and organizing bi-monthly hackathons where people gather together, identify one or more of the pressing uh, social issues that needs tackling and then just dedicate an entire weekend working on it um, has been going around since 2012. So it has a quite a tradition now. Um, and in Taiwan, uh, when we got our first presidential election in 1996, uh, that was also the year where world Web became popular. So unlike in uh, more advanced democratic countries with uh, longer traditions, in Taiwan, when we first got democratized, there's already the world Web, already the Internet. So we imagine democracy not as a um, heritage tradition, but rather a technology, a social technology that people can work on to improve. So for example, in GovZero, there's people working on election integrity making sure that during elections, all the social media advertisements on political and social issues must come only uh, from domestic sources and must be uh, published with the full audit of where the money comes from. Or there are people working in the tallying booth uh, when we're counting the paper-based ballots. We only have those uh, during presidential elections. Uh, The live stream uh, tools benefit equally all the different parties so that people can get the real-time counting information from the YouTubers that they trust and therefore improve election integrity and so on. So that's also a great counter disinformation tool by making sure that the real facts spreads faster than misinformation
1: think this community has has been so strong in Taiwan in particular. You know, it's it's got such a vibrant civic tech community. What is it about Taiwan that that, you know, it, it exists in other parts of the world, but it's really taken off there?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe this is because that we have a very strong social sector. In other countries, the social sector may be named uh, the voluntary sector, the charities, uh, the co-ops and social entrepreneurs, uh, and so on. There's a lot of different names for it. the third sector, as if it's the, the smallest, right? So uh, the social sector in Taiwan, though, uh, has higher legitimacy than even the public sector. And this is because during the martial law days, even before democratization, there's already very strong charities and social entrepreneurs that works on disaster recovery, that works on human rights, that works on various issues that gained uh, popularity and support and respect uh, from people in the population, especially after the turn of century major earthquake. And so because of that, our public sector, the democratic elected uh, government policy actually has a kind of catch up to do, because since the 70s or 80s, the social sector has already been winning public acclaim and legitimacy, uh, but we've only started winning that through the Democratic elected presidents in 1996, which is already a decade or two after the social sector builds its popularity. So uh, people generally come, uh, for example, after a earthquake or typhoon, come to trust the numbers that stem from the social sector instead of the numbers published by the statistics period uh, in the national or um, municipal governments.
1: Mm. You know, the it seems like part of the origin story of, of the role of, of digital minister in Taiwan was around the 2014 Sunflower Student Movement. Um, tell us a little bit about that movement, what it was all about and and what, what the people were protesting.
0: Sure, in 2014, uh, March, I was there in the parliament building um, helping to connect the occupied parliaments and the streets around it into a local area network. The point at the time was that people were against the sudden attempted ratification of a trade deal with Beijing. It's called the cross Strait Service and Trade Act. Uh, And the CSSTA basically uh, would allow, for example, the PRC components in our then-new 4G telecommunication infrastructure. Uh, and that conversation that we held in 2014 with half a million people on the street and many more online. Of course, it's going to be reverberated when 5G comes in other countries. Uh, but at the time already, people in Taiwan in the occupied parliament understood this is not just about demonstrating against something. This is also demonstration, a demo for something, and this is for good enough consensus facilitated by professional facilitators, helped by civic technologists. So those half a million people can come to agree, unlike many other Occupy movements that come to agree after three weeks of Occupy, the set of good enough consensus on not just the 4G issue, but all the trade issues. And we succeeded in delivering that consensus and the head of parliament uh, basically ratified it. So it was a, a successful Occupy. And the end of 2014, all the mirror candidate that did not support this open government style of policy making, well, they didn't get elected. And that's why I was recruited as a reverse mentor along with many in the GovZero community to serve in the cabinet. And so I guess I just get promoted to full-time after two years, serving as intern. So that's the origin story.
1: From intern to cabinet minister?
0: Uh Uh-huh, that's right, because I was a reverse mentor to a previous cabinet minister.
1: Explain that concept of reverse mentor.
0: Sure. Uh, So starting end of 2014 and um, in 2016, we promoted that to a full cabinet level. uh, We work um, like Annually, with around 35 uh, young people, uh, usually younger than 35, uh, and each ministry um, chooses one or two of these young people to work as reverse mentors. The idea is that those young people. Um, I'm no longer young. I'm 40 now. I used to be young. Uh, we uh, guided the cabinet ministers uh, to point to the directions uh, that may inform them to think out of the box in policy making. So we provided directions. But of course, it's still the cabinet minister providing the resources uh, to realize this. So my first project as a reverse mentor, for example, uh, is to work uh, with the crowdfunding community to make the crowdfunding laws together. Work with the teleworking community to. To uh, work the teleworking laws and regulations together, to work with the um, taxi community to regulate Uber, which we did quite successfully, and so on. And as you can see, none of these are traditionally a minister's topics because there were no associations or unions around such topics. So we have to engage the collective intelligence.
1: So from from protester to uh, reverse mentor and intern to cabinet minister to you know mm-hmm. that transition into government i'm sure um i'm sure in many ways like in on those on the issues that you were just outlining uh, it was exciting to kind of have some role in in being on the public service side of things um which obviously you, you um uh must have really loved because you committed your your next the next step of your career to serve uh, as a cabinet minister mm-hmm. What were the frustrations of some of those, the transition from protester, from civic tech community on the outside into uh, being on the government side?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to me personally, there's really no frustrations because I'm not working um, for the government. I'm working with the government. So whatever frustrations that people have on the outside, for example, we run a e-petition website where 5,000 people's signature can force a ministerial response. And if it's interagency, then we do collaboration meetings. We've done hundreds of this. Uh, And so all the frustration, for example, people are saying, oh, our tax filing system are explosively hostile. That's a real petition. Uh, then we invite the people who complain about it to redesign the text filing system together. Or there's people's frustration saying, uh, we get confused with the PRC all the time. Let's change the time zone to GMT plus nine, one hour into the future. And another 8,000 people said, no, let's remain in GMT plus eight. Um, and so we got those two groups of people talking to each other, calculating exactly how much it would cost to change the time zone. And then uh, all agreed to redirect that fund to make Taiwan seen as more unique by contributing to open government, uh, to, for example, um, the LGBTIQ um, issues and other international issues like climate action.
1: When you talk about the the GovZero community and and the civic tech sector more broadly, um, it, you know it seems like it's it's really just individuals, civic-minded individuals with, with um, technological skills who, who want to put those, those skills to, to the service of the people. Is there a role in that for the Taiwanese private sector, for corporations or companies as well, or is that kind of a different lane? Uh,
0: definitely. I call it a people-public-private partnership. Mm. So the people uh, think of the norms, prototype, the habits, the better habits, for example, checking a uh, interactive map before going to shop for a medical mask uh, starting last February. So it's not a government project. Uh, literally, people from the GovZero community uh, built dozens if not hundreds of such prototypes to ensure that people get uh, masked as quickly as possible. And then we amplify those norms with public service announcements uh, with very cute dogs saying, uh, the masks are here to protect your own face against your own unwashed hands who could disagree with that, right? So uh, we amplify the norms that the civic tech people do. But it falls on the private sector, the pharmacies, the convenience store chains, um, the manufacturer, of course, of those masks to join the system prototype by the civic tech sector to ensure that we uh, started from, um, I guess, less than two masks on average per person per week and growing up very quickly so that we can uh, currently have, of course, unlimited masks. But at that time, uh, in just a couple months, uh, we um, iterated until that we can have, for example, nine medical grandmas per 14 days.
1: Mm. I want to bridge the conversation now to talk about, you know, not just the GovZero platform and the tools that that have been developed, um, you know, to create more citizen-responsive governance, um, but to talk about social media as well. So, of course, here, here in the United States, uh, Facebook has been back in the headlines recently about modifying the algorithm to turn off safeguards against against disinformation and and um, you know allowing kind of some of the increased engagement and presumably increased revenue on on Facebook as a result, but ultimately contributing to polarization. Um, and, and uh, polarization and dissent, rather than, than, you know, kind of the integrative aspect of social media. Taiwan has a different approach of, of kind of leveraging social media technologies uh, for the purpose of forging consensus among the population, rather than creating a polarization and division. Tell us a little bit about about how that happens.
0: Certainly. So during the Sunflower Occupy, we discovered that as long as people have a more pro-social public square, so to speak, uh, to listen to one another at scale, then they will not take the the outrage into a more um, like discrimination, vengefulness, uh, other hateful um, outlets of those emotions. So building the public squares are very important, just as uh, you would hold a town hall Well, in a Town hall instead of a um, you know nightclub right uh, with smoke filled rooms people have to shout to get heard private bouncers addictive drinks uh, and, and I mean with all due respect the entertainment sector serves an important role in the society it's just the role is not to hold town halls so to try to deliberate uh, policy on Facebook would be akin to choosing a particular nightclub. Uh, branded uh, Facebook to hold our policy discussion. Of course, that wouldn't work. And so it's not about uh, constituents. It's not about the quality of people, but rather about the quality of the space. So in Taiwan, for more than 25 years now, we've got pro-social social media in the form, for example, of PTT, which is entirely subsidized by the academic network. So it has no shareholders and no advertisers, and it enjoys academic freedom. So for example, in 2019, December, when Dr. Li Wenliang from Wuhan uh, shared on their social media that there's seven new SARS cases from Wuhan, well, that didn't reach the people in Wuhan, as we all know, but it did reach the PTT, and within just 24 hours of reaching the PTT, we started health inspections for all flight passengers coming in from Wuhan, because on PTT, people contributed their expertise, their knowledge to triage this particular uh, piece of information. So building pro-social public infrastructure in the digital realm uh, could make consensus together. And uh, when we make policy around say Uber, we also use AI that's assistive intelligence to ensure that people can see what other, there's um, families and friends and so on. Maybe they didn't talk about Uber, but we can visualize their common feelings very quickly and easily. So people understand we actually have much more in common than we previously thought.
1: So are these platforms You know, if if you paint a picture for our audience of the average Taiwanese citizen, you know, they have do they have a Facebook account where they share Mm -hmm, pictures mm -hmm. of their cat and their lunch and then also have Mm -hmm. accounts on these other platforms where they're engaging in the
0: pro social Mm -hmm. um, social media? Yes. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess we maybe have more face accounts than we have uh, in population. So, (laughs) of course, um, people do enjoy sharing cute animal pictures. um, But people also understand um, that, well, we have more than uh, 23 million people, uh, and more than half of them uh, have participated on the joint platform, the one-stop E-petition participatory budget, regulatory pre-announcement and commentary like your regulations.gov and um, various other things um, like auditing of public budget spending and so on platform. And so on this platform, um, people understand that um, if they erase a topic even before they are of the voting age, Indeed, one quarter or more of the initiative were started by people younger than 18. So they could say, for example, let's ban plastic straws uh, in our national drink, bubble tea. Uh, And then uh, after collecting more than 5,000 signatures, that results in a true interagency face to face meeting, not just with the public servants, but also with the manufacturer of those plastic straws. So we can figure out a way uh, forward together. And so people understand only this. Uh, space have binding power that can actually get the policies made uh, and regulations changed and all the Facebook posts well they're just there uh, to make sure that people are aware of the issue for example posting a picture of a sea turtle choked by a plastic straw uh, on Facebook but then the link goes to the joint platform. Yeah
1: and and the the um, joint platform and the um the petition uh, initiative is is such a fascinating one we have change.org of course here in the US but but with the joint platform in Taiwan if if it gets 5000 signatures mm-hmm. the government agency has to at least mm-hmm. consider it right they don't mm-hmm. it, it doesn't create policy itself but it mm-hmm. puts the government agency in the position where they have to either consider it or explain why they're rejecting it
0: um, and it's not just the original petition, which is more like change the arc, but uh, we learned uh, something from Iceland, from their platform called Better Rekavik. Uh, and so after the petition is posted, there's two columns of conversations, one pro and one contra. And anyone joining the petition or not uh, can actually post their ideas to resonate against each other with upvotes and downvotes. Now, the uh, good uh, thing of this design is that whereas the upvotes and downvotes provide useful signals, we do not have a reply button. So you cannot start a flame war across the two columns. So at the end of the day, uh, all the pretty good points are surfaced on the top of the two columns, but there's no this kind of viral hatefulness or avengefulness uh, that usually results in other more antisocial designs of social media that prioritizes notifications and reply buttons. Right.
1: What are you mentioned plastic straws? Was that an example that actually happened? Or are there other examples of, of policy changes that have happened as a result of the join platform?
0: Yeah. So uh, in the past couple of years, um, all the cups here do not come with the <laughs> straws, right? Uh, they they are meant to be uh, drink um, immediately. Uh, and so, the the point here I'm making is that uh, the regulations not always, of course, work to the petitioner's exact suggestions but it did provide a way to increase what I call the bitrate of democracy, meaning uh, when we vote um, every four years among a few candidates, that's like three bits uploaded per citizen into democracy which used to be pretty good, but nowadays people, of course, um, learned that actually we can live stream all the time. Broadband is a human right in Taiwan. So we need to increase the bit rate of democracy by making sure that people can participate on a day to day basis. So in addition, of course, to the plastic straw or the redesigning of the tax uh, filing service and so on, we also work on more serious uh, matters, uh, for example, how to adjust our uh, Referendum Act, how to work with um, the constitutional rulings of marriage equality without offending the more traditional family-to-family kind of relationship, which is why we legalize the bylaws of the individuals, but not the in-laws. So when two um, like, uh, same-sex people wed, uh, their families don't, and they don't form a kinship relation. And that's a social innovation that's a direct result of the civic participation.
1: Mm. And it, how about the reaction from your fellow government officials to to things, you know, civic petitions that come through the the joint platform or other other innovations from the social sector? You know, are they are they always greeted with open arms by by government officials or is there mm-hmm. is there pushback?
0: Well, To them, um, I work in a purely voluntary association basis, meaning they can send people to my office as secondments, one at a time, and Taiwan has 32 uh, ministries, and my office is about 20 people, so that means at least some ministries uh, didn't send anyone uh, to my office. So my office has the secondments uh, from the people facing ones, such as ministries of education, culture, interior, communication, you name it. Uh, but for example, the Ministry of Defense never sent anyone uh, to my office. Uh, and so not all ministries are on board, of course, and certainly not uh, going to tell the Ministry of Defense from tomorrow on, let's just crowdsource our entire national defense strategy. That probably doesn't work. Uh, but the uh, Foreign Service did join uh, one year or two after I become digital minister because they discovered Twitter uh, with very good international examples of state um, leaders using Twitter very effectively. Uh, so they also want to learn from the public diplomacy, which is one part of the social sector. So I guess they're uh, gradually embracing these ideas. The closer to the domestic, to the citizens um, idea there is, the ministries um, are embracing it more quickly. And the more that it's more about more traditional like defense issues. Then we're not forcing them to adopt this technique,
1: right? Certain certain aspects of government work and ministries and agencies lend themselves more to to crowdsourcing sourcing and disruptive technology than others. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to something that uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, which is misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, several years ago, uh, President Tsai declared a war on fake news mm-hmm. um, and, and tasked you with leading the, the media literacy programs for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So many democracies around the world are facing uh, just this, this intensive effort around disinformation in Taiwan is certainly no exception and, and, and perhaps even one that um, that faces it more than, than others around the world. Um, you know, false messages about COVID-19 and, and um, the government's response in Taiwan, even, even f- false narratives around the mm-hmm. president and her educational credentials um, in the presidential election, Taiwan's been tackling misinformation and disinformation specifically in some, some interesting and innovative ways as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those efforts and how you've, you've been involved?
0: Sure. Um, so just a clarification. Um, in, in Taiwan, we don't just say media literacy. Uh, we say media competence. And this okay. is very different. Literacy is when you're a consumer of information and competence is when you're recording a podcast, like making uh, narratives and making media, right? So uh, in our basic education curriculum, which I helped to, to chart before joining the cabinet, we emphasize the idea of the students themselves participating in making news. So for example, during our three presidential uh, candidate uh, debates and forum, um, the middle schoolers will fact check them uh, in real time. And working with the public tv and other um, middle schoolers middle schoolers uh and so uh it's not just a exercise actually their output is seen directly by the people watching the the debate life well not just middle schooler everyone in the society but middle schoolers see it as a civics class assignment uh just as the straw um like banning the plastic of straw petition was a civics class assignment from senior high. So anyway, so the, the point I'm making is that when people participate in making the news and learning about the importance of rigor in journalism, then they kind of have a vaccine of the mind against the more um, outrageous um, media messages that's spread by the more antisocial corner of the social media, but if they can only receive consume information, sometimes it's very difficult to tell one source of information against the other without learning the fact-checking skills oneself. Also we help um, to communicate um, to dispel the trending rumors by uh, what we call humor over rumor. <laughs> so basically, uh, we identify by people flagging uh, voluntarily spam. In their communication media, like if you receive an email, it doesn't go to your junk mail folder, but you think it should, then you can flag it as junk mail. And that signal gets reported to House, an international network. So the next time this spammer tries to send to somebody else, it lands in their junk mailbox, not their inbox. Uh, we've been working on uh, the counter-spam strategy for decades now. So we apply the same strategy. If you're a Taiwanese citizen in your end-to-end encrypted chat group, usually on the LINE platform, and you see a viral um, scamming spam, that's disinformation, you can loan press it and then report it to one of the partners in international fact-checking network. And so we have a real-time picture on what kind of disinformation are viral at any given moment. There's maybe just two or three every day. And then the participation officers, the folks who are themselves comedians or work closely with comedians in each ministry, then dispel those rumors by making self-deprecating humor. Uh, And so and also cute dog pictures and so on. And people who laughed about those Memes. Well, they don't get um, that much outrage anymore to share the original disinformation, and are more in the mood to fact check.
1: Yeah, it seems like the the challenge with fact checking is uh, building and ensuring public trust in the fact checkers. And so, mm-hmm. do you think that building kind of humor in as a as a means of engagement for the citizens has mm-hmm. has proved successful for Taiwan?
0: Because uh, we need to democratize fact-checking. And democratized doesn't mean uh, just to make it inexpensive and accessible, which is kind of this century's use of the term. Uh, but the last century's use of the term when Taiwan was democratized, meaning everybody has a say in it. So uh, by crowdsourcing also the fact-checking and offering mm-hmm. like Wikipedia, uh, there's a GovZero project called CoFacts uh, for collaborative facts. Anyone from any position can join this collaborative fact-checking and that by and large uh, made people feel better because if they think that professional fact-checkers are wrong, well, they have an equal voice just like Wikipedia versus um, the Britannica, right?
1: We've talked about so many uh, technological tools and platforms that that you and the government and the social sector are using. Often we think of technology as kind of a young person's game. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about these tools and platforms in the Taiwanese context, what would you say about the adoption of the older of these tools and, and uh, technologies by the older generation of Taiwanese citizens?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I talk about how 16 and 17 years old um, kind of uh, contributed more than a quarter of citizen initiatives. Uh, but the second most active group are actually the 60 and 70 years old, that is to say the retired population, because maybe they have more time on their hands. Uh, And because of this, they form natural allies. The younger people, the grandchildren, for example, uh, help their grandparents to um, initiate citizens petitions uh, and the wisdom of the elderly translates that uh, call to purpose uh, into something that resonates best uh, with their neighbors. And so this is based on the um, broadband as a human right. So the senior people who are uh, more comfortable with video conferencing as we're having now instead of just you know writing some petition text right using keyboards, uh, they can still fully participate using live streaming and other assistive technologies
1: even even those that didn't grow up as digital natives with with you know access to a computer and and uh, internet at their fingertips are able to bring to the table what they do have, which is, as you say, the wisdom of age and sort of bridge bridge the generation gap in the with the best of of both worlds. Um, there's been a lot of uh, pessimism both in the United States and around the world about um, the role of technology, its impact on on democracy, uh, in a very different way than we've been talking about in in our conversation so far. Taiwan provides such an example for how technology can really be leveraged to to strengthen and and embolden uh, democracy and democratic institutions. Um, the power of social media to forge consensus using these, um, you know, the the um, Uh, misinformation and disinformation, uh, media competency tools that that you described. Um, Do you think Taiwan just has the right confluence of factors from, you know, a a civic minded society, an educated highly educated population, um, maybe, you know, a, a tradition of civic trust to make that work? Or is that something that other democracies can, can learn lessons from and, and adapt to their own societies, even if they're very different countries than, than Taiwan?
0: For example, the collaborative fact-checking has spread to a lot of different jurisdictions in indo Pacific, uh, some of them less democratically advanced than Taiwan. Uh, but then people, the social sector there, just as Taiwan's martial law days, focus on the non-political fact-checking issues for example, around the environment, around putting this food and that drug together causes um, cancer or something, right? That's also a a kind of very popular misinformation uh, and so on. And so by focusing on the food and drug and environment and things like that, they do not directly uh, threaten uh, the more authoritarian government, but still they amass the legitimacy that I hope will one day surpass that of the authoritarian government as what happened in Taiwan during the 80s. Um, And so I would say any place where there is a social sector, any place where people contribute to issues that affects everyone, everyone's business with everyone's help, then there is a room for uh, the Taiwan model to work as kind of tools in a large toolkit, not as an entire transplanted model.
1: Does that mean any democracy, essentially?
0: Yeah, any democracy or really any place that still have some semblance of freedom of speech, which is the majority of the world's population.
1: Yeah. Um, when you tell us about kind of your interactions with, with your, your counterparts or maybe would be counterparts around the world from other countries who are either doing digital work as a digital minister or digital ambassador, um, or maybe in countries that don't have, um, such a a vibrant, um, social sector or civic tech community, um, are, do folks uh, from around the world reach out to you for to, to adapt those lessons that you were just talking about to to their own uh, to their own host, to their own nations?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I nowadays often wake up before 7, like today, right? (laughs) Uh, Because of time zone, uh, we're all time time zone travelers now. uh, Because of time zone issues, so I wake up to talk to North and South America, friends, and during the daytime, slowly moving to Indo-Pacific, and in the evenings with the African and European uh, counterparts. Uh, So in a sense, uh, we are seeing that the counter-pandemic and counter-infodemic are global urgencies. And because there are global urgencies, even in jurisdictions that previously did not have a digital minister, they have to find someone, some way to counter that. Sometimes it is leading um, like internet companies or antivirus companies in their uh, nation. So not necessarily government officials. It could also be CEOs and CTOs of the counter-spam initiatives there, or it could be one of the largest um, consumer protection organizations uh, as a charity and so on but one way or another is always to build cross-sectoral partnerships to make sure that no single actor can dominate the conversation and that's after all what a democracy is based on
1: Well, let me close uh, selfishly, if I may, with a question about, about the United States, about the role mm-hmm. of the United States, whether it's the US government, our own technology community or, or um, American companies, our NGO and nonprofit sector. Um, what, can, what can and should we be doing to support uh, Taiwan's digital innovation on the one hand, and also to kind of bring some of the lessons um, that you've shared with us today uh, to help our own uh, democracy and democratic institutions here in the U.S.? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, the thing is that the technologies we use, indeed the Internet, (laughs) appear in the United States. But a consensus-making pro-social media AI-assisted conversation like Polis uh, came from Seattle. So basically, uh, we're using the open source, the free culture movements originating from the U.S., and making sure that we apply it, not just for the governance of the internet, but also governance of plastic straws and tax filing, right? So, I think uh, one of the things that the U.S. people can uh, think about is to apply a similar model, but on a smaller uh, jurisdiction unit. For example, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, uh, they also tried police in a kind of civic assembly uh, to talk about the pressing issues. And although people grouped into kind of different, like two partisan uh, clusters, um, there are things like putting art in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and math, put art, the creative competence part of it, uh, to it. And also, for example, uh, to diversify the broadband uh, situation and so on. These things enjoy broad support regardless of the political affiliation. And so these are like the low hanging fruits that people can work on together as infrastructure projects uh, and that are not uh, blocked by the partisan dynamics. So think beyond uh, the polarization, but rather to work on the good enough consensus using the tools that has already has a proven record, not just in Taiwan, but also uh, in smaller jurisdictions within the US.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, this this podcast, Reaganism, and and our, our work at the Ronald Reagan Institute is mm-hmm. dedicated to uh, advancing President Reagan's legacy uh, to address the challenges of today's world. and. President Reagan's legacy involves many things, but I think at its core um, is promoting freedom around the world. And I think the work that, that you and your colleagues are doing in Taiwan, both uh, both in government, with government and through the social and civic tech sector, um, is helping not just the citizens of Taiwan, uh, but as you uh, as you engage with your colleagues around the world um helping freedom to advance. And so thank you for for your service. Thank you for what you do uh, for the cause of freedom. And thank you, Minister Tang, for joining us on this podcast.
0: Thank you. Uh, And we look forward to work with you and work with the people, not for the people, certainly not running people's lives.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening.